Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Power and ideology are joined at the hip. There's no point in saying religious ideology since, and let's be honest with ourselves, all ideology in all its forms, secular or otherwise, is religion predicated on fear. Will we have enough? Will we be safe? Will we suffer? In Matthew, the answer is clear. God will provide what you need. You may not be safe, and you will likely suffer. Your fear of these things encoded in your ideologies is what gives power to those who oppress you, and you the power to oppress. So stop being a coward and start trusting in the voice of the shepherd contained in his scroll. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 15 to 19. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 373 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I love Matthew chapter 24 because everybody uses it to try to predict what's going to happen in order to stir up the very anxiety Jesus is dismissing in the chapter. Nothing is more profoundly abused than this phrase, the abomination of desolation, which biblical scholars have tied, obviously, to the book of Daniel, to chapter 9, to chapter 11, and chapter 12, because they're making an assumption through an analysis of the Septuagint, most likely, about the connection between the Greek terminology and the Hebrew terminology, although different words are used in Daniel and translated in different ways. But the point is, the book of Daniel isn't talking about the United States, and it is not predicting the future. (laughs) The book of Daniel is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem as per the prophet Jeremiah, and the sin of Jerusalem, and the judgment against the rulers in Jerusalem. And here we are, In Matthew 24, on this ride cruising away from the city after Jesus went in to destroy the city, we're still on the tail end of Palm Sunday in the Gospel of Matthew. I've seen how people revel in chapter 24 with the most cringeworthy results. I remember seeing a movie back in the 80s that tried to depict the tribulation. There was somebody sitting in an apartment in L.A., and they're looking at photos from when they were a child of their dead father. And as they flip through the pictures of the dead father, 
it was suddenly beckoning him to come out into the desert and to leave the story and to head for the hills like in Matthew 24. And so he left and went into the hills in order to avoid the tribulation that was going to come upon Los Angeles. That's the kind of cringy way that I see people dealing with this chapter. So when we came back to the language of the text and the context and the literary situation we find ourselves in, that's when I can sigh, a breath of relief because when we get into the actual words and talking about the destruction and the desolation, this is coming, like you said, on the tail of Palm Sunday. This is the discussion of how the city is going to be destroyed, speaking specifically to these disciples who are impressed by the buildings, whom Jesus has to warn, do not do like the Pharisees do, but listen to what they teach. Scripture is always going to be the reference point. What actually is happening in Daniel? Why is Daniel referring to Jeremiah? Now, we don't have time to go into all those connections today, but that's what it takes to understand this. So, God forbid we have out there a director who wants to make a movie of the tribulation happening in 1980s Los Angeles. But if you're going to do it, if you must do it, please, please, please do your homework. Understand what's happening in Daniel. Understanding how Daniel is referring to Jeremiah. Maybe Jeremiah and Daniel will dissuade you from making your movie, which would make me perfectly happy, especially because you spent time in Daniel and Jeremiah, and those became the reference point. Because God forbid the reference point of the desolation is the image you concoct in your head about how all those bad people who are nothing like you are going to panic and suffer, but you are going to be perfectly confident in the Lord and are going to follow his instruction exactly how it's written in Matthew 24. How are you going to go and follow God's will perfectly if you haven't even read Daniel and Jeremiah to understand what they're trying to say? Don't try to tell me that you're obedient when you don't even know what you're being obedient to. I mean, this is the basis of what Jesus is teaching. If you don't know the basis of what Jesus is teaching, how do you understand what Jesus is saying? When the lecture is about the textbook and you haven't read the textbook and then you're allowed to just make up whatever you think the professor is saying, you haven't learned anything. We've said this before, but it bears repeating. The beast in Revelation and the numbers 666 in Revelation refer to Emperor Nero. The text is talking about Nero. People take a text like Revelation or a text like Daniel and they try to project the future in order to stir up the very fear that God is laughing at and dispensing with. So you stir up that fear. Why? So that you can then tell people what they need to do to solve the problem of their fear, which means you are taking power from their fear. This is why and how people abuse Matthew chapter 24. I bring in the example of Nero, because much more than the abomination of desolation, Richard, 666 and the mark of the beast have been blown out of proportion into all kinds of craziness in Western Christianity. If you want to know why John refers to Nero as a beast, you need only read the history of Nero. It's disgusting. And there are specific examples in the perversion of Nero's court 
that will help you understand specifically why he is referred to by the word of God as a beast. It's not just the abuse of power. There are specific references. The guy was a nut and a monster. And what I love about Nero is that he fancied himself a man of the arts, <laughs> which for scripture proves the point. He conducted himself as a monster, and he fancied himself a man of the theater and a man of the arts, an enlightened Greek, a Hellenized Roman. It's a bit of an excursus from this text, Richard, but it's worth repeating because we have to once and for all be done with Hollywood. God in scripture laughs at Satan, and everybody else gets excited about it. I mean, come on, people. Hear the text. The text is telling you not to be afraid of Satan or Caesar or destruction of any kind. The text is telling you to be afraid of the Father of Jesus, who wields Jesus like a sword. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. It's time to leave the city, the place that you thought would provide shelter, the place that you thought would provide safety because of the armies and the walls, is powerless before the coming Lord. And the Lord is coming to Jerusalem, not to rescue it from the Romans, but to rescue it, according to Jeremiah, from the rulers of Jerusalem. The rulers of Jerusalem have a single job. It's not to be worried about this king at all. How come these people who consider themselves devoutly Christian are quaking in their boots about seeing a demon or the devil around every corner or under every seat cushion? If we're not allowed to be afraid of Satan, how much more so are we not allowed to be afraid of this or that king or this or that army? So many people get so worked up around this. When we saw what the point was above, that this wasn't about separating the non-believers from the believers— it was about separating actual believers from fake believers, distinguished by who's going to be scandalized and who's going to betray the other and who's going to stop loving the other. This is when we have the abomination of desolation in the holy place, which in Daniel, as we were reading before, Father, it's the king who comes and exalts himself, who stops the sacrifices, who puts himself in the place of the holy of holies who only listens to himself, who has no need to listen to the will of God, who is his own will and who is his own law, rather than one who listens to and submits to the law that was given through the Torah to love the other and to take care of the needy neighbor. When I am the reader, I learn the lesson of what is happening here. And if I am more concerned about the city being destroyed, and if I'm more concerned about this or that king coming into power— than I am about staying true to the law, the teaching that was given by God, and about being faithful and loving my neighbor, then I can't be true to this word. It doesn't make sense. To have allegiance to one king over another king and not allegiance towards 
the love commanded by the Torah of God, then I have no hope. But if I do have that hope, then, like you said, Father, I leave the city. I have no need of the city. What is the city for? The city is there to give me protection from foreign armies, from wild beasts. But if I believe in God alone, then I'm perfectly okay moving to the hills and living like a shepherd out in the elements. I don't need that city. I can move out. This is what Jesus wants his disciples to hear. Hear the teaching. Don't do like the Pharisees. Hear the teaching. Be ready to leave the city at the drop of a hat so that you can remain faithful to this Torah that God has taught you. It's interesting, this expression, let the reader understand. Most Americans hearing this all these years after the dawn of the printing press will assume that the text is telling them to understand, but that's not true. It's not a reader the way we in the present era read something on the internet or curl up with a book and read it on the couch. It is the one who is proclaiming the word to the people in Jerusalem. So he's saying, let the one who is announcing these words to the people pay close attention, and you yourself heed these words, which is what we were saying last week about the importance of not scandalizing yourself. You can't just read it aloud. You have to read it aloud so that others hear it, and you yourself have to mind what was read. It's a threat. It's very much like notes at the bottom of a slide in PowerPoint. Make sure when you say this that you understand what you're saying because it applies to you. There's a corollary in Revelation, Richard, that teases this point out. In Revelation chapter 1, right away we hear in verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and all those who hear. So the best way to understand this expression, let the reader understand, is to think of the muadhan in a Muslim town who climbs up the tower to read so that others can hear. God is saying to the one reading from the tower, you yourself had better hear what you are chanting aloud because I'm coming and I'm going to hold you accountable more than anyone else because if the rulers in Jerusalem are not practicing my ways and submitting to my law, it's because you haven't been reading correctly. And this reading, this reading aloud... There's a reason why it comes here, because we just said in verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. It's a witness, like we had in Deuteronomy 31. That song is not to keep people from doing those things. It's so that when those things come to pass, it's clear that there was knowledge of that ahead of time. There was knowledge that this was going to come. This passage is not so that it doesn't come to pass. This is saying that it is inevitable this is going to come to pass. We don't know when, how, or whatever, but if the reader is reading it, obviously it hasn't happened yet, right? We're still preaching this. The job of preaching this witness to all the nations in the world is still happening. This is still being read to all the nations. So as this is being read, this news is still going out about this desolation in the temple, that there is going to be a destroyed city, and the temple is defiled 
but they're not defiled by some magic or some rite or something like that. Both the city and the temple are defiled because you have a king who goes in who has no interest in the will of God who controls both the temple and the city. It's a king who comes in who just teaches his own thing. The defilement is not against the temple. Remember, Jesus talked about this when he was criticizing the Pharisees. The defilement is against the God who owns the temple, who owns the table, who owns the sacrifice, for whom it all is one. And his teaching is ignored. That defiles the entire works. It's the leader who defiles the body. It's the leader who scandalizes and scatters the sheep. It's the leader we've been trying to explain in our work for the Orthodox Christian Leadership Initiative. It's the leader that's the problem because there's only one leader. It's God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming to reestablish his authority over Jerusalem, which is bad news for everybody else. So important to understand. We are not talking about the future literally in terms of history. We are hearing Matthew unfold in our mind's eye. And we are bearing witness to the destruction of Jerusalem foretold in the prophets. It's not about a literal bombing or a destruction of a city. It's about the tearing down in our mind of the things that we want to build. This is what St. Paul explains very explicitly. Why do you keep trying to build up the things that I tore down inside your mind? So Matthew is completing Paul's mission by demonstrating through the story of Matthew how the teaching that Jesus brings tears down Jerusalem so that we can get back to the business of looking to God's kingdom for life and hope and security. And the security that that kingdom offers looks like the cross because you cannot overcome Nero or Tiberius, or any of these other crackpots, if you're afraid of what they can do to you, you have to stop being afraid of what's going to happen to the stock market, or whether you can pay your mortgage, or what they might do to you in the dungeon. It's only when you're no longer afraid of what they can take away from you, or what they can do to you, that the power of the kingdom can be made manifest through your witness and your obedience. That is the currency of the Gospel of Matthew. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. It's just stuff. I'm calling you out of the city into the wilderness. I am your shepherd. Listen to my voice. All you need is my voice and I will protect you and guide you with my staff, and there will always be food, and there will always be water, because I live in the palm of the Father in his wilderness, which he provides for all life. Why do you need a king? I'm doing a retreat on Hosea 
right now, and that's one of the big points in Hosea 1 and 2. The land, the wife of God, forgets that it's God who provides everything. The beauty of the land, the clothing of the land, is the crops and the flax and the oil and the olives and the sheep and the wool and all this are her beauty. And she thinks that Baal gives it to her. She thinks that she figured out a way to coerce Baal into giving it to her, but forgot that it was God who was giving it all along, her true husband who was giving it to her all along. And this is the one who has to make sure they got all their stuff, their stuff. Where did that stuff come from? The stuff came from the same one who calls them out into the desert, so don't worry about it. The ideal time in Hosea was back after the Exodus when the people lived in the wilderness, when they had no food except what God provided, they had no water except what God provided, they had no shelter except what God provided, and then when they went to make the golden calf, where do you think they got all that gold from? They got it from the Egyptians when God softened their hearts and the Egyptian people gave it up voluntarily. Everything that they have comes from God alone. If you're going to be faithful to this teaching and you're fleeing to the hills, you simply obey. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. It's following the same pattern. You don't have to worry about what to wear or what to eat in Matthew. Remember, this is the gospel of the lilies of the field. If you abide by the voice of the shepherd, and you trust that he will care for you, that he will always lead you to a pasture where there will be something to eat, or to a well, or as Father Paul would say, an oasis in the Syro-Arabian desert, the point is the shepherd will provide. So don't grab your cloak. There's no time. The other thing that's great about this metaphor of there being no time is that it echoes the spirit of the Gospel of Mark, which follows the Gospel of Matthew canonically in the syntactical order of the canon. And Mark, of course, is really agitated and doesn't want to waste time. You just get up and go. You already have that here in Matthew. When somebody has purity of heart in the biblical sense. It's not about purity as in they're clean. It means that they are single-minded. They are, in a way, zealous about one thing. And if you're zealous about obeying the voice of the shepherd, when he calls, you jump and you go. And he wants you to jump and go because he has work to do. And he needs you to follow him. It's mission-oriented, which is why there's this military undertone in the Gospel of Matthew. It depends heavily on obedience, which is why there's a parallel between the patrician and the shepherd. The slave in the Roman household has to listen to the patrician, just like a sheep is essentially a slave under the shepherd. And if you've ever seen sheep, you know that they have no say in anything. They either follow the shepherd or they die. That's why all this debate about the sheep having free will is silly. Yes, you have free will. Follow me to the stream or don't. <laughs> don't follow me and see what happens. This reminds me of what we talked about last week as well, Father, when Jeremiah said, when the army comes to attack, surrender. Don't fight back. Don't hunker down. 
Don't muster your army. Give up. Don't hunker down. Don't go inside your house and hide. Don't go and get all your stuff to protect yourself. Just go. Just as the people in Jeremiah's time were told to give up their homes, not just their stuff, but their homes themselves, to give them up to the enemy, to place themselves in exile for the enemy. This is what obedience meant for Jeremiah, and this is what obedience means here. A hundred percent trust that God will take care of you. This abandonment of everything that we hold dear down to the clothes on our back. Remember that when you see the images of the refugees holding everything they own in a little plastic bag in their pocket. This is what it looks like. We don't do it here in Matthew so that people feel sad and donate money to a worthy cause. Please do donate to worthy causes, but when it's the time of the desolation, we do it out of faithfulness and out of trust with God that he is the only one who has ever provided for us And if anyone continues to provide for us, it will only be God. And I know, Richard, you've done a lot of work with Green Card Voices, which is a nonprofit organization committed to taking care of the immigrant and helping them find a place in this country. If you think that they're not your neighbor, as I've heard some Christians say, you are putting yourself squarely in the same chair as the rulers in Jerusalem who want to convince us that the Gentiles are not their neighbors. And you should be afraid of this gospel. Thank you for bringing up green card voices. I mean, just knowing that these people are no different from you, that's the terrifying piece. The one who comes in and says that the Asian is different from the white person or that the black person is different than the white person as far as being full members of this society, you know, maybe as far as America goes, they're separate. Doesn't make it good. In fact, that just shows our sin and that we think of one person as more of a neighbor than another. But this is exactly what we should expect, because this is what Matthew taught, that one shall betray another, and love of many shall wax cold. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.